this class or this discussion we're going to have today is, and for the next coming weeks, is on the work by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, known as the Kuzari. Brief introduction to why we're going through this text. First of all, and also from the, um, well, there's a couple of different ways of uh, articulating why it's an important text. First of all, it's one of the oldest works on Jewish philosophy we have. So by way of an authoritative text on Jewish thought, it doesn't get much better than the Kuzari. This is before Maimonides, this is before Nachmanides, the Rambam, the Ramban. This is like an ancient work of Jewish texts. From the, he was born in 11, uh, 1075, I believe. Hele. Well, that's not really a work on Jewish philosophy and we'll touch upon that in a second. We're gonna talk about what is Jewish philosophy and why it's important. But before that, we would have to ask ourselves another question. What is philosophy and why is it important? And we're not gonna get bogged down in definitions, but it's important to do that to see why what we're doing is so important. And then we'll talk about why we're picking the Kuzari. Good? And then what we'll do is we'll start working our way through the text. Now, I haven't bought every part of the text. I'm taking, I'm jumping about a bit, but the cool thing about this work is that you can just pick it off the shelf and read it. It's a nice read. Unlike um, the Moed of Uchim, which is the Guide to the Perplexed by Maimonides, which is probably the next most famous work of Jewish philosophy, that's a hard work to read. It's a hard philosophical treatise, which is difficult to understand what he's saying. He purposefully contradicts himself. He, his goal is to articulate complex ideas. And if you don't get him, he's quite happy with that. Then he doesn't need it. He says, if you don't understand this, put the book away. He's, he's, it's very elitist in that sense. This, you can pick it up and go through it in a couple of days. It's, it's, it's thick, depending on which translation you get and how you are. But it's a book that can be read and enjoyed because it's a dialogue. It's not just someone chatting to you. It's a dialogue between a king and a rabbi. It's a discussion that grabs us, that involves us in the story. But before we get on to why we're gonna do the Kuzari, let's ask a question. What is philosophy? Why is it important? And what is Jewish philosophy and why is it important? And this way of panning out or opening up the discussion I got from one of my teachers called Rabbi Chaim Eisen, it's from Hanav actually. And he's, a, he's an expert in the Kuzari. And the reason why I think it's worth opening up like this is because then we can appreciate why learning the Kuzari is important, but also why I suppose philosophy in general is important. So when we say philosophy, what do we mean? Do you have a philosophy? I'm not asking you personally. I'm saying in general, people use that word. I have a philosophy. Well, what do we mean by that? Philosophy is an academic study that they do in universities. They ask weird, thought experiments and paradoxical questions, but what is a philosophy? And when I ask this, a, we can all, all guess, I mean, it's, like a, like a, it's not a correct answer. There's many definitions. The translation is philosophia, which is the love of wisdom. That's not particularly helpful either. I mean, you can make it helpful by saying the striving after wisdom is something you should be doing, but that doesn't help us in understanding what Jewish philosophy is. What, one working definition, is, yes? No, 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 no. I, if you have a suggestion, let, let's open it up because remember, this is going to be a, a, a class where we're going to be asking questions. I've always thought of like philosophy, at least like the type where like it, you use your logic to like think of things, and like it, you don't have to like go into a lab and like 
You're using your mind to structure things. Yeah. That's going to feed into what we're going to suggest. Yeah. Beautiful. Perfect. Excellent. Both. A hundred percent. And we're going to build off both those points. Yeah. Perfect. One of the one of a classic definition of philosophy is the causes and laws of that which underpins reality. It's not the study of reality itself, and that's what's so key here. The laws and causes that underpin reality. Reason why that's so important is because it's not the gathering, I'm literally quoting my teacher verbatim here, it's not the gathering of data. And this is a fundamental shift. We're not looking to gather data when you're a philosopher. You observe the data and you give it a structure. The data itself doesn't give you a structure. When you look out in the world, there is no structure to it. You impose structure. You impose a why onto the what. To put it in the most basic sense, you come across a field. Nothing about the field tells you how to cross the field. You have to have a, a purpose, a goal, a reason to want to cross the field, a direction to need to go in. The data itself doesn't give that to you. The why you impose upon reality is the structure. Hence, it underpins reality. It makes it meaningful. This is what philosophy in the general sense is doing. With this definition, as I said, someone can give a different definition, but in the definition we're working with now, it's important because you can't live without it. It turns us all into quasi-philosophers. We all give structure to things. We all read people and learn from people who have given structure to things. And when someone gives us a better structure to look at the world through, we adopt their structure. You've heard of the idea of a paradigm shift? That's a better structure. There may be another paradigm shift, but a paradigm shift is a shift in how you underpin reality, how you look at the world. The, the given in this context is the world we experience. That's the reality of a philosopher. Now, in different areas, the reality will be different. In political philosophy, it'll be political systems. In the philosophy of science, it'll be the scientific world. And then you'll be able to do this political science. Metaphysics will be the world of a metaphysician. The different, the reality that it's dealing with is the reality that it will structure. As individuals walking through the world, you structure it. Yes? Is it, um, you can't exist, like you can't not have a philosophy. It's impossible to not have a philosophy. Correct. Even, In, even if you say like some people, some people maybe think about the structure, they want to see the world as more than someone else, maybe some people just go along with what they, but it's still a philosophy. Even if they haven't given conscious thought to it, they're still living by philosophy. So in, in, at least in the way we're defining it here, a person doesn't say, no, philosophy is the study of wisdom. I don't care about why politics is doing what it's doing. I don't care about the underpinning of politics. I just want to vote for this person because I like them. So they're not doing political philosophy for sure. But in the most fundamental sense, they have a meaning they're imposing on reality. Reality doesn't talk. Reality doesn't tell you its meaning. 
you have to impose that as conscious agents, we impose that on reality. That's what we mean by philosophy in this context. I'm stressing in this context because I said it can be debated. So that's what a philosophy is. It's giving a structure. Why is it important? Because you can't do without it. Hence, the better you are at structuring or appreciating structures, hopefully the better your life will be. Where you learn better ideas, your life improves. So what's Jewish philosophy? The same as regular philosophy, but with one added component. God's a bit too broad. What is a given for a Jewish philosopher that's not a given for a secular philosopher? The Torah. The Torah is the given. The Torah is the reality we're dealing with. That's the world of Jewish philosophy. It takes the biblical and rabbinic traditions, and that's its world. And it structures that world. To give you an example of this, the Torah tells us to love God. What does that mean? You can say it, but I mean, maybe you do, but looking at the Torah, love God. Believe in God. These ideas need structure and definition. The reality the Torah gives us We've got to structure it. We've got to understand it in a context. It's got to be elaborated. So the greatest Jewish philosophers take the entirety of the Torah, well, to the best of their ability, and they structure it for us. They make sense of it for us in a way that we can use it, the way that we can integrate it into our lives. To proclaim belief in God is a meaningless proclamation, if you don't know what you're talking about. To articulate a phrase, to articulate a concept, but without understanding it, isn't meaningful. The more you can structure something, the more you can understand it, the more you can appreciate it. That's the world of Jewish philosophy. That's what the great Jewish philosophers did. They structured the world of the Torah for us, which would move out of the camp people who happen to be Jewish. Another way of phrasing that, well, another way of phrasing that is questioning the validity of the Torah isn't going to be in Jewish philosophy in this definition. The validity of the Torah could be questioned. Of course it could be questioned. Is the Torah true? I did it. But to take that seriously and really analyze it, we would have to step outside Jewish philosophy. Because if the truth of the reality is under question, well, then you can't do that from within the system. Within the system assumes that. You can bring extra evidence to your propositions, but when we open the Kuzari, he's not questioning the validity of God or even the validity of the Torah. He's taking it as a given. That doesn't mean we can't have that question. When we talk about when the, when the Rabbi Yehuda Halevi brings his evidence for the truth of the Torah, we can ask a question. Is that a good argument? We can ask that question and we can analyze that question. But the world that the Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is doing in this book He's taking certain things as a given. And he looks through the world through those lens, at least while he's writing the book. You caught him in a, in a bar on a Tuesday afternoon and said, do you believe in God? I assume he, I assume he would say yes, but he might say to you, well, sometimes I, I doubt, I, probably not those times, but I'm saying we might see a different person. But in the context of a Jewish philosophy, in the context of a Jewish philosophical text, 
one of the givens is that the Torah is true. And how do you structure that? How does free will fit into that? How does the failing, the failures of the Jewish people fit into that? What do we mean by the next world? Who, who gets the next world? What's the soul? You can't ask, is there a soul? That's a question, but it's not gonna be in a question inside the world of Jewish thought. That's a question you have to ask before you come in. What do you mean by the soul is a question that he'll ask. Is there a difference between a Jewish soul and a non-Jewish soul? That's a question he's gonna deal with. Those are the questions that come into play in the world of the Khazari. Yes. Is that any philosophy that bridges that gap? Like, you know, you said if you're born Jewish, let's say you're born Jewish or not, and but you're not in the gap, that you're still questioning the validity of the Torah or something, but you need to, like you said, um, you're not asking what the difference between a Jewish and non Jewish soul is, you're still questioning is there a soul? How do people even, even deal with those questions and progress to like getting within the realm? So people have to wear multiple hats, simply speaking, meaning me as an individual. I question the validity of the Torah. Of course I do. On some level, I, 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 I ask, is it true? I can ask such a question. And on some level, how open am I that if the question, the result to my inquiry was no, would I leave it? That's a question I can ask myself. But if I'm discussing certain truths, I can't question those truths while I'm discussing them. A person can play hypothetical and say, hypothetically, if the Torah was true, let's discuss it from within. We, we can discuss Aristotelian metaphysics, even though we don't believe in it. You could do that, but then you'd be doing you'd be you'd be studying Aristotelian metaphysics. You can't question the, the, the you can't question the validity of Aristotelian metaphysics while being an Aristotelian, meaning living in that world, accepting it as it's true within that world. When I say step out, I don't mean physically step out. I mean mentally step out. You can ask the question, and you can take the question dead seriously, but in the world of the Khazari, he's not questioning the validity of his assumptions. He's taking them as a given. You and me and everybody in this room, we could have a class and like, okay, guys, we, we want to find out, is there any good reason to believe that the, Torah story, the story of the Torah is true? And we can have that discussion. And we will, because the Khazari tries to bring evidence to the truth of the Torah. But I don't think ever he's got the possibility it's not true. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's no, there's, there's not an intermediary philosophy that's like, like in a middle ground here. No, we step outside. A person can say, listen, I, 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 I have no doubt about the truth of the Torah, but I like to have, you know, uh, a re-energization of my Muna. That's all within. A person says, no, I'm, I'm seriously doubting this. Or I'm, I, I want to be able to look at it from the outside and see objectively without any uh, presuppositions, is this true? First of all, how possible is it to take yourself out of that completely? But that's a question you could ask, but it would be outside the world of Judaism. Not that you would have to go somewhere. I'm saying just conceptually, it have to be outside this system of thought. Does that make sense? Yeah. You follow? We're good? To strengthen like understanding. Sorry? To like, strengthen your understanding. So as I said, there's, there's one thing which is a person's trying to strengthen their emunah, or the language they would be using to strengthen their emunah, and a person's question the very concept of emunah. Mm. To be honest, you would have to step outside. Not that you would have to just become a pagan or a Christian. No, you would step outside in your thought processes. Okay, I want to see, is this true? And analyze the evidence. A person may say, listen, if I was looking at it from the outside, I wouldn't commit myself to the Torah. But I'm not looking at it from the outside. I'm looking at it from the inside. And, and by the way, there's, there's a place for that. To give you an example, the king, 
before we get into the, 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 the point of the data, the king asks a question. Rabbi Yehuda Levi presents an argument for the truth of the Torah, the nature of mass revelation, right? And he tries to say it's quite convincing to the truth of the, the claim that the Jewish people's source of existence is that uh, the Jewish people's source of uh, truth is better than anybody else's. What's the question the king asks him? He says to him, in which case, why is everybody not obligated in it? If it's true, and it's so obvious it's true, why isn't everyone obligated to follow it? And we think initially, well, you're not, you don't have to be a Jew. Yeah, but if the truth was so evident, everybody kind of would be obligated. If there was this ultimate purpose that was so obviously true that any normal person would just obviously see the truth of it, why don't you think everyone's obligated? That's a really good question. An answer someone may give, it's not that obvious. Maybe it's not such a good argument. But that's a really good question to ask on such a problem. When people present you proofs of Judaism and they present them in a way that leaves no opening to doubt, good question is, it doesn't seem like it really is that convincing because then everybody would be doing it. In which case, what's missing? We'll develop that. Uh, a suggestion I had, which I thought was quite good, was that the Jewish people aren't approaching this in isolation. It wasn't an event of Sinai happened to us as individuals. It was in the context of our relationship with Hashem. There was gratitude there. It wasn't God deity gave us Tyra. It was God, the God of our forefathers, the God of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the God who took us out of slavery. There was Hakaras there as well. It's not that just event happened. It's the context of who that event happened from that makes us obligated. But that's an answer to a question. Good. All right. So, the Kuzari is a nation of people in the Turkish area. About the year, I think the year, the year 800 of the Common Era. I think it's 800. Around that time, where there was basically a kingdom of Khazars that all converted, or the nobility converted to Judaism. This was historically verified. At one point, this wasn't known. But this actually did happen. Now, Rabbi Yehud HaLevi, in the opening of his Sefer, says he's recording the story that happened. That seems very unlikely. Rabbi Yehud HaLevi is basically giving us, a, giving us a philosophical treatise in a dialogue that he's making up. But he's basing it off a historical precedence. There seem to have been some letters that imply that a king had a conversation with a rabbi, and they all converted to Judaism. Historically, this kingdom of Khazar was situated between the, I think the Byzantine Empire and the Islamic Empire, and they both wanted them to convert to their respective religions, and the Khazars were like, we'll take a middle ground, we'll become Jewish. Mm -hmm. How that worked out for them, I don't know, but apparently it was, a, it was like a hub for trade in the uh, medieval world. So in essence, Rabbi Yehud HaLevi is making up for us a story. And when we open up the story, because it's a story, and because he's choosing the characters in the story, there's a meaning and a purpose to why he's choosing them. So it's like historical fiction? Yeah, but when you do historical fiction, if I choose a king, I can ask why a king. I didn't have to focus on the king. I could have easily told you a story about, and when we open up, you'll see where I'm coming from. I could have easily chosen other characters because, and this really draws me to the final point, 
The reason why Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's work is so popular is that not only is it an old book, thereby it has authority for Jews. You know, things that written older, people like more. The idea of Eureka Satyrus, the idea that as time goes on, we're further disconnected from our ancient roots. So what comes earlier is better. This is one of the earliest. That's not only what reason why it's great. It's also great because it calls to us on an emotional level and an intellectual level. He was a philosopher, but he was also a poet. We have his poems today. We read his poems on Tishabov. We read his poems because they were beautiful poems, meaning he had the ability to touch our soul as well as our mind. It's a story which by definition does both of them. The best, the best. Some of the most gripping philosophical works are put into stories because then we become part of the conversation. Stories are written, philosophical treatises that are written in dialogue. I mean, you've heard of Plato? He wrote all his work in dialogue because you get to see two sides of a conversation. You're a character there. You're listening to them. When one asks a question, I can say, why are you asking that question? The story is there is a king and this king has a dream. And the book is set up into five sections. After the first section, the king converts to Judaism. Why is that important? It didn't have to be that way. He chose to make it that way. In which case, what do you have? You don't only have at the beginning a story by a, um, a king investigating the truth of Judaism. In which case, I have the dynamic of Jew versus the outside world. The rest of the book, I have brothers. Within Judaism, a conversation is happening. I get to play both those out. How would you do that in a treatise? Give over philosophical truths. It doesn't, doesn't work the same way. I wanna see how a conversation happens when I'm questioning you. How can the Jews all sin? You said Sinai happened. They all serve the calf. That's a question the king asks. That's a good question. Like, oh, God's there with mountain. So obvious, so true. 10 minutes later, you guys are dancing around a cow. Like what? That's a genuine question the king asks. And Rabbi Huda Levi has to resort. But Rabbi Huda Levi is the one who asked the question. There's no king. So this allows us to be, to immerse ourselves in the conversation. And a suggestion brought, that why is this so important? One of the ideas that, or, or an idea why the Kuzari is so fundamental, is that it, it's, it's, it's uh, that's not the best way of putting it, it's the root or the source of more Hasidic style of thinking. Hasidus is very popular. Why? Because I'm in relationship with God. There's emotion there. It's not just Gemara. It's this emotional, this joy. It has its antecedents in the Kuzari because he's appealing to both sides. He's a systematic thinker, but he calls to experience. He challenges philosophical speculation and talks about experience. And that's a dialogue. A dialogue is an encounter with parts of the conversation. So, are there any questions on that? Like little introduction to the because we went through, what do we mean by philosophy? We spoke about a definition of philosophy. We spoke about why Jewish philosophy is important because the, the example my teacher gives, is if you take, if you heard of the Sefer Chinuch, he talks about six constant mitzvahs that you're obligated to. You know, there's this book called Six Constant Mitzvahs. One of them is believe in God, not have other gods, unify God, love God, fear God, and not stray after your heart. Now, most of those 
don't make sense in isolation. If I say love God, if I say unify God, like do that as a thing, as a mitzvah, what does that mean? We can say the words. And the example he brings is in, when was it? In 12, easier, in the 1200s, um, there was the uh, thinker called the Rumban, Nachmanides. And he was known to do uh, a famous work, uh, it's called the Disputations, where he was challenged by Christians of his time, where he had to debate them. It was a thing the Christian world did to the Jews. Lovely, they basically forced us to debate them and lose and get fined or kicked out or expelled. But there was debates that happened. And Nachmanides was one who did this and did it well and won. An example that happens in Shabbos Nachamu, the king and the uh, Pavlo Christiani come to the shul to challenge the Jewish people and preach the Trinity, etc. And Ramban challenges them. But Pablo Christiani, the, uh, the antagonist, let's call him, stands up in the shul and proclaims his commitment to the Trinity. And how does he do it? He says, I believe in the unity of God. I believe in the unity of God with all my heart. And God is three. And this mystery is so deep and so profound, even the angels don't understand it. Wow. And Nachman gets up and says, then even the angels don't believe it. Because if you can't, if you're not making sense, or if you don't understand what you're saying, you can't say you believe it. You're just saying things. We can all say, talk is cheap, but to understand what you're talking about is how you can know something. Now, this doesn't mean you have to go to the further extent that I have to be able to put God into a box. But when I say God, I have to have some inkling of what I'm talking about, more than just, I was told to say this. And in its most basic sense, having no Jewish philosophy is repeating what you were told when you were six or five. Having a Jewish philosophy means that when I say God, there's content to that statement. And this was an idea that I wanted to talk about when we were talking about the Tower of Bovel. But the idea that there's a, to put it this way, when you're striving for truth, what are the two biggest enemies of truth? Lies. Denial. Denial, lies. These are all things that stand against truth. But the way I heard it put once, which I thought was, was really good, one, the denial of truth, total relativism. There's no truth. Truth is elusive. There's no such thing as truth. The other enemy of truth is thinking you've got it. Because if you think you've got it, you'll never grow. Something like that. That doesn't mean you don't think you have truth. You've, you've got things that you think are true, but you always have to have the door open to grow. And it's a very sad situation when people have the same conception of God, of Judaism, of Shabbos, of truth, of, of, of love of God, of fear of God, they had when they were three. And they keep that conception to when they're 60. And, it's, and the work of Jewish philosophy is trying to remedy that. You cannot take when you're, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. No. What do you mean? God isn't everywhere. God's not a thing. But maybe he, that way of describing God has its advantages. I'm teaching my son and my children that Hashem isn't uh, only in a certain place. You see, he's everywhere. But do I mean he's everywhere? Like, like, like atoms are everywhere? Probably not. But if I don't mature my conceptions of reality, 
of the reality we're dealing with as religious people, I never grow. And that's where you get the very sad situation sometimes where you have uh, people who sophisticate in many areas of their life, but their religious worldview never changes. You, you were blessed to go to seminaries. You have great teachers that uh, like Rivka, but you, uh, that, that, that you, just for the recording, that's my wife. Which means you're constantly improving your perspective. But I've been giving classes in, uh, in a law firm or in a bank and people ask me very silly questions and these people are professional. But they, they're, they're, they're bankers, they're investors. And in their professional life, they would never stand for such a silly question. But their conception of religion never matured. So when they're in the mindset of religion, things don't really make sense. It's like a bit of Lord of the Ringsy, It's a bit Harry Pottery. They don't actually have to make sense. When I, when I say that, what do you mean by, as we gave the example, trusting God? What do you mean by that? In the, I want the same level of proficiency that you would give when I ask, should I invest in this company? Treat it with the same level of seriousness. That's too much. Now, the person, the, the other side of things may say, no, I want a simplistic way of looking at the world. I want a simplistic way of my relationship with God. And there's a value to that as well. You don't want to have to be able to characterize and categorize everything to the point where the emotional side of things has been gone, has been drained. And that's why the Kuzari is so valuable, because you've got someone who is aware of that danger. He's not trying to make us into philosophers. He's using philosophical concepts, but he's not trying to make us into philosophers, which you have the danger with the Moral Nebuchim, with the Rambam. People can learn the Rambam and lose their relationship with God because they have this, and the Rambam drains it to an extent. The Kuzari doesn't do this. He looks at the foundation of our relationship with Hashem, the encounter, the relationship, not the conceptual framework. To go full circle, that's why Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's work is so key and so beloved throughout Jewish history. It brings a Jewish pride in the best sense of the word. It brings a Jewish love for Eretz Yisrael in the best sense of the word and a deep connection with our religion in a way that doesn't drain the emotional side. Yes.
and why they give reasons and how they give reasons and try and ground those reasons as being true, not just speculation. But there is also a point to, as I said, the idea of the, the, the Trinity being beyond, that's the basis of their religion. The, 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 the death of Jesus at the cross is the basis of Christianity. Without that, you don't have anything. And Jesus being part of the Trinity is also a fundamental principle within Catholicism. But is there, a, is there a truth to that? That at a certain point, you aren't going to be able to understand it? Of course there is. But that's true in every area of human existence. When you're in a relationship with someone, there is a point where you won't know the other person. There's a part of them that's a closed box to you. But that's kind of, you want that. You don't want to completely categorize and understand every aspect of, of a friend, of a spouse. You, there, there is an aspect that to the best extent you can, you want to get to know them. Yep. All right. I want to jump into at least the beginning so we can begin the conversation so we can carry on with the text next time. Um, I'm going to read. Can we all, if, if we, uh, in, in, as I said, if you've got hold of the, the text, it would be great to just read through it. But we're going to read through different sections and different parts to give rise to the different ideas that Review Hood High Lady brings out. So it begins um, to him. To him, we're talking about the king, right? The king came a dream. And it appeared as if an angel addressed him saying, thy way of thinking is indeed pleasing to God, but not thy way of acting. So the king has a dream, and this is the impetus for the story. It's interesting, Rabbi Huda Levi has to grab us. And he grabs a king having a dream, and an angel appears to him in a dream. We're gonna to have to think about why he chose these metaphors. An angel appears to him in a dream and says your intentions, as it's often translated, is good, but you're acting the way you're living it out is wrong. He wants to continue. Continue? Go for it. Yet. The angel came again at night and repeated, Thy way of thinking is pleasing to God, but not thy way of acting. This caused him to ponder over different beliefs and religions, and finally became a convert to Judaism together with many other converts. So the king gets a calling. The calling is from an angel in a dream. And the focus is on action. His intentions are great, his actions aren't. This already gets us thinking. A dream? An angel? Why a king? We're going on the religion. He's, he's, the king clearly is striving for truth there. He got this dream. He thought he was doing the right thing. But then he got a constant reminder that there was something lacking. So he investigated. He has the call to adventure. Why a king? What gives us something with a king? By using the king as the hero here is so valuable for Abihud Alevi. What's, give me some ideas that come about with a king. Yeah. King influences other people. Yeah. A king has to balance arrogance, but also, like, he, you would think he's arrogant, but also there's a sense of, like, he has to be humble. Okay. Not, not, I'm more kind of not, feel like, like he's all high and mighty, which is hard because, like, the king is in charge of the whole kingdom. So Interesting. The king has a huge amount of responsibility. He has a lot of responsibility and title, but he has to remain, like, grounded. Even a king has to be. Grounded. Okay, that's true. That's true. King has loads of money. Freedom to choose. Freedom to choose. King, king, a king 
what, what, if you're going to think of the critique that people give against religion, what's the classical critique? You're scared, you need companionship. That was called the critique from suspicion. Not that Judaic religion isn't true. It was more that religion was silly. You do it because you want community. You do it because, 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 because. He bypasses all of that. He puts that all to one side. So we've got a king on this investigation. The king is striving. He's got everything sorted. But we can still see him striving for truth because truth, doing the right thing, calls to him. And this appeals to us as human beings. We are striving for true meaning. We're not just striving for meaning. We're striving for meaning that's connected to reality. What, what, what gives people um, cognitive distance is that when you're living something out that you don't think is true, you're acting in a way that you don't think mirrors reality. If we found out for whatever reason, the way we're living our life, there's no fundamental reality that it's reflecting, we wouldn't do it or we'd feel bad doing it. That thirst, that striving is what the king is after here. He wants the truth. The first thing he does is he investigates the truth. Yeah. No, no, no. So I've got the, the suggestion by, um, I think his name is Shalom Rosenblum. Rosenblum, he's a professor in uh, Hebrew U. He brings a suggestion why a dream. There's another, it's a great commentary because he, he grounds it in the modern world. He says, we have two things here. We have an angel and we have a dream. An angel is top down. A dream is bottom up. A dream is it coming from within me. That's the striving we have as individuals to pursue the truth, to pursue reality. An angel comes from above. An example of that is when something happens to you that makes you think, or that what a sociologist called a signal of transcendence. A person looks at the world and gets a push to investigate the truth or the underlying reality behind what happened. People have experiences that move them in life. Now they'd say, God sent me that mis message. Whether God did or didn't send, I don't know, but that motivates people on their journey. The dream is giving validation to the bottom-up path, which is me striving for truth. Why? Because I want to pursue the truth. I want to be in touch with the true reality. And the other, the angel, gives voice to this other direction, that people go on the religious journey because something external happened to them. Something called them. They had a child. And they looked at the child, and they were like, there's more to reality than what I'm doing at the moment. Doesn't mean they become Jewish, but it means they pursue a meaning in their life. They become seekers. A person who's not a seeker, it's a very dull life. You just have to go keep on moving or keep on immersing yourself in whatever's distracting you. A seeker is a person who's pursuing truth. And what gets people on that journey can either be bottom up or top down. Yeah. Um, when you were saying before, like the debate. Mm -hmm. uh, how were the Jews able to show that their miracles that are in the Torah are, this might take on so much dependency, not to answer it now, but just I'm curious about that. Like, that's, that's, a, that's another conversation. Yeah. And he does, he deals with that. Because yeah. also remember that he's the, the king is going to invite a philosopher, a Christian, and a Jew yeah. into the conversation. Mm -hmm. And when he does that, we'll discuss that question. 
it's going to be okay. next class. Yeah, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, you had a question? No, no, he's giving back. I, we don't know what he's doing. But perhaps, and by the way, that's the beauty about this. When I ask a question, it's not necessarily, sometimes it's rhetorical because I'm part of the, giving ideas that I've nicked from other people smarter than myself. I'm going to discuss them. But sometimes it's, he's not with us anymore. And he didn't write why he did this, which means part of the modern world, would someone give the same interpretation 500 years ago? Probably not. But that's the beauty of the Kuzari. We're trying to ground it in our reality, in our experience. We're trying to take, like, to put it in the most cliche way possible, we're trying to take the wisdom of the ancients and ground it in our experience. Because this is something I experience. When I am striving to do good or striving to improve my relationship with God, to improve, to, to strive for, for truth, often that comes from one of two places. Either something external, good or bad. It's not only good things that happen to me that make me uh, pursue my meaning in life. It's also bad things that happen to me that make me, that force me to reanalyze, reflect, but also internally on those dark nights of the soul where I'm like, am I being genuine? Am I being authentic? Is that, is that, can I strive more? And I think this gives voice to both of those. And just to end off, the last point he makes is the intentions and actions. And that's worth reflecting on. Your intentions are good, but your actions are not. And we know people who have good intentions, but the actions don't always live it out. They want to connect with God, but their actions are not. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Not me. That's a way of expressing. I have great intentions, but I've got to go X. Yeah. How does your religious worldview play out in the world? And this is a big Jewish question because Judaism has a big focus on actions to the extent that people say, there's a book that came out, does a Jew have to believe anything? Like, yes, there are certain philosophical principles that come along with being Jewish. Judaism has a huge focus on action. It's that, that, once again, that unification, not the abstraction of the mind. You're acting in a way that's not pleasing to God. And very specific actions. And that's when he'll come into his discussion of the meaning of those words, of the meaning of why a Excellent. Yeah. I was just trying to see, so actually, I was talking to Rick Stone, like, Fear that um, could be interpreted as like actions, and then love of God could be interpreted as like the. Interesting. I mean, that's not, yeah. <sighs> so we've we've we at least the first paragraph, and next time we're going to jump through the rest, which is the world of the philosopher, where he's going to tackle the world of philosophy, and in the ancient world that was very appealing. We don't look at philosophy like we did when we discussed philosophy just now. That's not how they looked at it. Philosophy was a way of life. It came with a goal. It came with a conception of the universe. And he's going to, Rabbi Yehuda Levi is going to do his best to rebut that. Then he's going to bring in a Christian. Then we're going to start the treatise of the rabbi. And the rabbi starts articulating fundamental principles of Judaism. And we're going to see how they fit in and make a cohesive picture.